0: In the 14th century, Italian poet Dante Alighieri penned his masterpiece, The Divine Comedy. The epic poem tells a story of a lost pilgrim who is guided through hell to meet his beloved in heaven. This fantastic journey is also a coded allegory. Hidden in the symbolism is a much deeper story with a map of history that connects Dante's life with our own. This is Dante's History. Inferno, Canto 15 Know them and some, that all of them were clerks, and men of letters great, and of great fame, and the world tainted with the selfsame sin. To sum up the poem so far, poet and pilgrim Dante Alighieri is on a spiritual pilgrimage. Guided by the ancient Roman poet Virgil, he has traveled nearly seven of the nine rings of the Inferno, a realm where damned souls are eternally trapped in destructive cycles. They first passed through the area of the passive sinners, and encountered souls whose lack of self-control led them to harm others or themselves. But now they are in the area of the active sinners, in the seventh circle, which is reserved for those who are willfully violent. They met tyrants, those violent against others, and suicides, those violent against themselves. In the last canto, they came upon the edge of the third ring, for those who were violent against God, nature, and order. They encountered a desert of flaming sand that they could not pass, and met a big warrior with a bigger ego, who was famous for openly challenging the gods before being struck by lightning. Virgil told Dante about the bloody origins of the rivers of hell, and they used one such stream to help them cross the burning sands. Virgil and Dante are walking along the raised bank of a small red river that flows down the sloping sands of this sub The gushing stream has turned the sand underneath and around it into stone. It also provides a misty aura that protects our travelers from the flakes of fire constantly raining down on this desert. Dante once again references real-life locations to help the reader visualize the area. In this case, a place by the Flemish coast between Bruges and Cadsen, where great bulwarks were erected to protect farmland and people from flooding. This location also happens to be the ideal starting point for any ship sailing to England, and both Flemish and English wool were vital to the booming textile economy of Florence. Florentine merchant families like the Bardi had a presence in the Flemish cities. This is the first of three references to Flanders in the Divine Comedy. Another example Dante gives to describe the path he's on is a place by the Brenta River that leads to Padua. The townsfolk built a dike there to protect their crops and homes from overflow caused by melting snow from the neighboring Alps, mountains known as the Chiarentana in what is today Austria. Dante adds that the raised ground the pilgrim is currently walking on, although similar, is not quite as high or thick. They are not more than a person's length above the flaming sand, as we will soon see. The pilgrim notes that they are so far away from the forest of the suicides that he doubts he would be able to find his way back if he tried. Here is where they come upon the next group of sinners. When we a company of souls encountered, who came beside the dyke, and everyone gazed at us, as at evening we are wont to eye each other under a new moon, and so towards us sharpened their brows as an old tailor at the needle's eye. This group of souls eye our travelers like passing strangers in the night. Not to use the word tailor specifically, to say the pilgrim felt like he was being sized up, One of the souls recognizes Dante and grabs the hem of the pilgrim's garment. He cries out, What a marvel! It's interesting to note the mention of Dante's garment and the use of the tailor simile here. These may or may not be more references to the textile industry, but in any case, Dante's garment will be mentioned again in the next canto for being distinctly Florentine. Like the rest of his group, this damned soul has a scorched and blackened face, But that doesn't stop the pilgrim from recognizing him. Dante bows down to ask if he is indeed Sir Brunetto. The soul confirms it is Brunetto Latini, a renowned philosopher, politician, and fellow Florentine citizen. Latini had a lot in common with Dante. He was a Guelph, the political party in medieval Italy who opposed the German emperors. He was a writer, heavily involved with politics, and he was also exiled from Florence. Like Dante, Brunetto was away from the city when his political enemies took over following the bloody Battle of Puerti in 1260, five years before Dante was born. Dante would eventually help the Guelphs reclaim the city in 1289 at the Battle of Campaldino. Latini was known as a master of rhetoric who taught Florentines how to speak persuasively The Pilgrim refers to him respectfully because Dante was a student and admirer of Latini's work, which is why it's somewhat puzzling that he would put his teacher in the inferno among those who were violent against nature. There are many explanations for this. One commentator made the case that Dante simply didn't like the fact that Latini wrote his greatest work, Tesoro, or The Treasure, in French and not Italian. So he put him here among the blasphemers. Latini defended this decision in life by noting that it was written while he was in France, and French just sounded better. We'll get back to this topic of why Dante feels so strongly about his Florentine language. A common but unlikely explanation is that Dante is accusing Brunetto and others here of being homosexuals, since Sodom is mentioned back in Canto Eleven. Some point to the abuse often found between older mentors and young male pupils. But there's no evidence to back up these claims. The confusion here might have to do with the interpretation of the sin of Sodom. Because of a correlation made by Aristotle between making money from money and unnatural breeding, it was common to depict moneylenders as sodomites, which is why the usurers are also found in this circle. Usury, as a reminder, is the act of lending money at interest. During Dante's time, this insult was used to denote someone who is generally deceptive, abusive, or uncharitable. This other definition of sodomy still exists today. We use it to describe the intent of scammers, or the IRS, who seek to screw you over or take advantage of you. The act of turning other humans into prey is considered bestial and a violation of natural law. For more about this and the condemnation of the predatory lending practices of the usurers also found here, refer back to Canto 11. We won't get to actually meet the usurers until Canto 17 when we glimpse them in the shadow of the beast of fraud. And for more information on the historical confusion between sex and debt in Christianity, I also recommend Professor Michael Hudson's book and forgive them their debts, which makes the compelling case that the Bible is preoccupied with the topic of debt, not sin. The most fitting explanation for Latini's presence here, given the evidence and the overall context of this poem, is that Dante has a problem with Latini's personal priorities. Latini supposedly cared more about his reputation than he did his position as a notary. He's believed to have once made a small clerical error, and rather than own up to it or correct it, he blamed others and feigned ignorance, which ultimately led to his exile. Dante may also be at odds politically with Latini for supporting the papacy over the empire. In Dante's eyes, this could have been akin to dooming the city to chaos. Latini says he will walk with Dante, even though it is in the opposite direction he and his group are headed. The pilgrim offers to sit with Latini if his guide allows, but Latini declines and notes that if he stops moving even for a moment, he will be forced to lie still in the sand and let the fire rain down upon him for a hundred years. He opts to rejoin his lamenting group shortly, then walk along with Dante, with whom he is at skirt level. The pilgrim dares not to leave his elevated path for fear of getting burned, so he must bow down to speak to Latini. This is Dante setting the tone for the exchange. Though he is on an elevated path, he still shows reverence and respect for Latini. The teacher's first question to the pilgrim is about his fortune. What twist of fate brought Dante here and who is that leading him? The pilgrim's response is a great summary of the journey's beginnings. Up there above us in the life serene, I answered him, I lost me in a valley, however yet my age had been completed. But yestermorn I turned my back upon it, this one appeared to me, returning thither, and homeward leadeth me along this road. These verses not only sum up the first canto of Inferno, they also reference Latini's poem a companion to Tesoro, called Tesoretto, or the Little Treasure. In it, Brunetto tells a story about himself, when he's on his way to Florence and finds out it's been taken over by the Ghibellines. Distraught, he wanders into the woods, where he meets allegorical representations of nature, virtue, and love. Dante is acknowledging that Brunetto provided the spark that became his divine comedy, but he's also noting that Virgil, is now showing him the path home. The pilgrim never names his guide. Dante might have meant to illustrate that Latini, by not recognizing Virgil, was saying he was ignorant of his work. The key difference here is that Latini was a supporter of the papacy, and Virgil represents Dante's new belief that the chaotic Republic of Florence should be managed by the necessary evil that is the Empire. Latini goes on to encourage the pilgrim to pursue his life's ambition, for he cannot fail, assuming Latini's judgment of Dante in life was accurate. Latini died in 1294 when Dante was only 29 and not yet in public office. Latini regrets he died before he could help Dante with his present and future work. He's likely referring to Dante's political career in exile. Next, Latini goes into a bitter tirade against a group of people he calls ungrateful and malignant descendants of mountain people. As the legend goes, the Roman citizens who founded Florence conquered neighboring Fessole and invited the Fessolians to live in Florence. They became the commoners and the Romans the nobles. This is the story used to explain why the Florentines were always at war with each other. Latini says nothing good can come from the family trees of the Fassolians, who he feels are innately savage. He compares Dante, a descendant of the Romans, to the fruit of a better tree, and warns that these savage people will make the pilgrim their enemy for his good deeds. This appears to be another prophecy about Dante's exile, similar to the one told to him in Canto 10 by Farinata. Who, by the way, led the charge against Latini and the Guelphs in 1260 at Montepuerte. Latini speaks of an old rumor about the Florentines being blind, greedy, envious and proud, and suggests that Dante cleanse himself of their customs. We know by the original title of this poem, the comedy of Dante Alighieri, Florentine by birth, not by custom, that the poet has already shed the customs of his town. But the rumor as some commentators puzzled. One suggestion is a story about columns made of crystal-laden rock given to the Florentines by their neighbors in Pisa. The columns were covered in a fabric so the Florentines didn't realize they contained cracks. These cracked columns can still be seen today as part of the Baptistery of St. Giovanni in Florence. The idea is that the Florentines were scammed for not paying close enough attention. Another explanation is the account of how Totila, king of the Ostrogoths, tricked the Florentines into letting him invade the city. And when Totila realized he could not take it by siege, he tried to devise ways to take it by deception, by flattery, and by treachery. Totila desisted from laying waste the surrounding countryside and sent word to the Florentines that he wanted to be their friend, promising and showing great affection for them. The incautious Florentines and thus they have been proverbially called blind, believed his false flattery and vain promises. They opened their gates to him and allowed him and his army to enter the city. Latini warns that both parties, the blacks who represent the nobility and the whites who represent the commoners, will be hungry for Dante's fortune like goats for grass. This fortune is understood to be Dante's work as a poet and public servant and the influence he had on politics and the people. But as we know, Dante was exiled by the black nobility for opposing Prince Charles of Valois, and his assets were seized. Though he was a member of the White Guelphs, he had become frustrated with the infighting, and by the time he began writing the Inferno, he had joined the Ghibellines in supporting the Empire. Latini suggests that Dante should let the Florentines rip themselves apart, that the pilgrim, a descendant of the noble Romans, will be like a fruitful plant rising out of the manure that is Florence. The pilgrim swiftly responds by sharing his gratitude for Latini's work. He says if it were up to him, Latini would still be among the living. He has a fixed image of Latini as good and paternal, He says, Latini taught him how a man attains fame and glory and becomes immortal through his writing. He says he will take the warnings Latini has given him about his career and add it to the other prophecies he's been given so he can present it to the lady in heaven. This is Beatrice, to whom Dante is ultimately headed. Of Dante's fortune, the pilgrim admits, assuming his conscience is clear, He's ready for whatever adversities fortune may bring. He says, quite sarcastically, that this type of hansel, which is a token of good luck usually given at the start of a new transaction, is not new to him. So let fortune spin her wheel and let these peasants, or so-called descendants of mountain people, do and say what they will. Virgil, who has been walking ahead of them, responds to this with his only line in the canto. He turns his head, looks back at Dante, and says, He listeneth well who noteth it. The pilgrim remembers the advice Virgil gave him after he received Farinata's prophecy in canto 10, that Beatrice will help Dante sort out the information he's been given. This could also be a reference to Virgil's Aeneid in a verse that reads, All fortune is to be overcome by bearing it. The pilgrim then turns his attention back to Latini to ask him about the other members of his group. What other famous sinners are punished here? Brunetto replies that there are some worth noting, but too many to name in such a short time. Latini says that they were all clerks, men of letters and great fame, and they all suffered the same sin. He mentions Priscian, a 6th century Latin grammarian, whose influential work Institutionis Grammatica dives deeply into the nature of Latin, everything from vowel sounds to inflection and syntax. By the 14th century, Classical Latin was mostly used by clerks or other members of the church, almost exclusively in Northern Europe, in places like Germany and England. Italy and much of the Mediterranean were using a vernacular version known as Vulgar Latin, a sort of street language that was much more suitable for merchants and travelers because it was easier to communicate with foreigners. Dante was very passionate about the subject of the vulgar tongue. Before he began his work on the Divine Comedy, which was written in the Italian vernacular instead of Classical Latin, Dante began an unfinished treatise on the subject called De vulgari eloquentia. In it he explores the nature of rhetoric and power, and why he believed the vulgar tongue was nobler than Latin. I declare that vernacular language is that which we learn without any formal instruction, by imitating our nurses. There also exists another kind of language, and one removed from us, which the Romans called grammatica. The Greeks, and some, but not all, other peoples, also have this secondary kind of language. Few, however, achieve complete fluency in it, since knowledge of its rules and theory can only be developed through dedication to a lengthy course of study. Of these two kinds of language, the more noble is the vernacular, first because it was the language originally used by the human race, and second because the whole world employs it, though with different pronunciations and using different words, and third because it is natural to us, while the other is, in contrast, artificial. And this more noble kind of language is what I intend to discuss. Dante wrote these words while in exile, and he wrote them in Latin because he was speaking to his fellow writers. Latin was the default language for important documents, but since only a select few could read and write it, Dante felt an important cultural experience was getting lost. He makes the case that Latin is too static and rigid for abstract or artistic thoughts. The vulgar tongue was the voice of the people. Spoken languages are alive, always changing and evolving. He uses the words illustrious and curial, meaning he found them more suitable for teaching and discussing civil matters like justice. Justice is also the reason Dante mentions Italian lawyer Francesco de Accorso, son of Accursius, a well-known Florentine jurist and glossator. From the Greek word glossa, which means tongue or language, a glossator was a scholar of Roman law who would expand upon existing law by way of little notes in the margins known as glosses. Accursius famously compiled about 100,000 glosses into a great gloss, which became highly influential in Florentine civil affairs. His son, Francesco, is a different story. According to one source, Francesco used his father's work and fame, taking credit for the work as if it were his own, and also supported the King of England and the Pope against the Empire. Since Roman law is the Empire's responsibility, he, by his allegiance to its enemies, abused and misrepresented the law he taught. The final soul Latini mentions was transferred to Baclione by the servant of servants. This soul is understood to be the Bishop of Florence, Andrea de Mazzi, of the Mazzi banking family. And the servant is a sarcastic reference to Pope Boniface, who was forced to transfer Andrea to another city for abusing his privileges. He reportedly used excommunication as a weapon, taxed the clergy to pay his expenses, and was also just a bad preacher. All the men mentioned in this canto have something in common. They were civil servants who, in Dante's opinion, abused their positions and power. De Corso and Brunetto cared more about fame than they did maintaining order in Florence. The Latin writers weren't capturing the voice of the people. Laws were being abused for personal gain of the clergy, and the art of rhetoric was being misused. These men were supposed to maintain order, but they failed so Florence was left in chaos. And for this, Dante has put them in the circle for those who were violent against nature and order. The canto ends with Latini saying he could say no more. Dust clouds are approaching, signaling the coming of another group of sinners whom Latini must avoid. In a final show of vanity, Brunetto recommends his own work, Tesoro, if Dante wishes to learn more about him and his opinions. As the famed mentor runs off, the pilgrim notes that he looks like the naked runners of the race for the Green Mantle, which was an annual foot race in Verona where the winner received a green cloth. Dante's final description of Latini solidifies his loss of respect for his teacher, he notes Even though Latini has fallen behind his group, he is running as if he thinks he's winning. In the next canto, we continue Dante's exploration of this topic of rhetoric when the pilgrim meets a few more respected Florentine nobles who wish to discuss the importance of valor and good manners, but who are actually the opposite of grace. We'll also reach the edge of the seventh circle as we make our way out of the realm of violence and into the realm of fraud. Next time, on Dante's History. I'd like to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters, Edward, Matthew, and Justin. And thank you to anyone who sent me messages through our website. I hope to produce more episodes of this podcast on a regular basis in the coming months. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash Dante's History. As always, the podcast will be available for free. Thanks for listening.